And you may turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that still on page 976, I think. Every once in a while I check. I didn't check this week, but I think it's still the verses we're doing is on that page. 976, Ephesians chapter 1. Here's the little bit of review to set up the last chapter of Ephesians. The setting, after praising God for all of his multifaceted blessings for those who have been placed in Christ. Those are the, that's the first scripture reading we did from verses 3 to 14. Paul shares with the believers, that is the local churches, what he's praying for them. In light of all those blessings, how does he pray? Because of what God has done, here's what he prays next. That was the second scripture reading. He prays that God may give them, you, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. So we spent a lot of time on that, how knowledge is engaging in scripture. It's not just being able to recite facts, recite doctrinal points, uh, win a Bible trivia quiz. It's not that. It's knowledge that affects the way you you think, uh, the words that you say, the things that you do. It, it, it changes your life, that kind of knowledge. And God has to give something. God's giving, whether that's the Holy Spirit or whether it's within you because of God's Spirit. He gives you a spirit of wisdom. That's debatable. But God's giving wisdom and revelation. He's enlightening the eyes of our hearts so that we would know. And then he goes through a list of three things that he's praying that our church would know. The three things are what we did last week. He wants us to know what is the hope to which he has called you. So without spending a lot of time on that, but to recapsulate, hope in scripture is a certainty of something future. I am certain because of who God is and what he's done and what he's promised, I'm certain of a certain outcome, a certain future. He's called me to that outcome. And when God has called me by his grace, he's going to see it through to completion. He doesn't lose his sheep. The second thing Paul prays for our church, if he were alive, he's not, he's not like the Mother Mary or anything, but the second thing he's praying is what are the, that we would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And though we are called, we are given an inheritance, I think that probably has more to do with we are God's inheritance. God has made us his inheritance. And if you really think about that, that God has made the church his inheritance, how that ought to change us and give us hope and optimism. It ought to encourage us. Uh, it ought to make us bold and confident because we're God's inheritance. We're that important, called by his grace. Number three, what he prays for us is that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And I want to spend just a moment on that before we press on and forward. I want to talk about that word immeasurable. Uh, it's one of the, your Bible may say, uh, the excelling greatness uh, of his power toward us who believe, or something along those lines. It's a word, it's a verb that's only used five times in the Bible. That's how it would translate into English. It means to throw beyond or to surpass. Immeasurable. In other words, it's one of those things that no matter what you thought about it, you underestimated it. Uh, 
though whatever you did think about it, in comparison to everything else, you may have given it the highest estimation, you still undervalued it. You can't imagine what God, you can't measure what God has done. It's used five times in the New Testament. Three of the five are in Ephesians. Now, as a noun, it occurs other places in a, in a greater variety of settings. But as a verb, only five times, twice in 2 Corinthians and three times in Ephesians. It's worth looking at because I think I could do a whole series on what are the immeasurable things God does. What are things that no matter what we think about it and how much we may grow in our understanding, we've still sold it short. Because nobody could possibly envision all that God did. So go back. I don't have the page number. But the book immediately before uh, Ephesians is Galatians. And immediately before Galatians is 2 Corinthians. So go to 2 Corinthians. And in chapter 3 and verse 10, we have the first time that word is used of something that cannot be measured. It's so over the top. Um, This is Paul comparing the old covenant given to Moses with the new covenant given to us in Christ. So beginning in verse, say, 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone... What was carved in letters on stone? The Ten Commandments. So he's talking about the Ten Commandments. If He calls it a ministry of death carved on, in letters on, on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that is because God can give you ten laws, but you'll never be justified by them. It will only condemn you. You can't keep ten laws. God could give you one law and you'd fail. He'd give me one law and I would fail. So that's why Paul can call it a ministry of death and condemnation. Verse 9 again, let me reboot. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it surpasses it. It's immeasurable, the glory of the new covenant. It's not like, wow, you know, in the Old Testament, Judaism, Israel, Moses, they were given tablets of stone, and it had glory, but it's not an equal thing. Well, now in the, in the new covenant church, we have an equal glory. They're not equal. They're not the same. Both came from God. Both have glory. But the new covenant has an immeasurable glory, a never-ending, never-failing glory. Moses' glory diminished, and it ended. Not so the new covenant. That's the first use, not chapter 9, verse 14. Still in 2 Corinthians, go to the second use. Of something that is immeasurable. Immeasurable. I guess so I'm not in the middle of a sentence. Go back to verse 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13. And Paul is writing to the Corinthians, encouraging them to give generously. He says, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. 
while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. The grace of God upon you, Paul tells the Corinthians, it's immeasurable what you've received. So don't be cheap. Don't be stingy. Don't hold back. That's how he's encouraged. You've received, you can't even measure what God has done for you. I think in Ephesians, you could equate that to the verses 3 to 14. Look at what God has done for you. It's immeasurable. Now do something about it. Let it affect you and change the way you live. Go to the next three uses. Well, we're in chapter 1 and verse 19, so you don't need to go to there. But go to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse... Well, let's see. Uh, verse, t- we'll just go with verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. Speaking to believers who've been uh, made alive in Christ, it says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Again, God's grace, immeasurable. You can't imagine. However wonderful you, however optimistic you are about the future and the kingdom of heaven and and sin being removed, you have no idea how God's grace is going to affect and change things. It's immeasurable. And then the last use in chapter 3 and verse 19. Chapter 3 and verse 19. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The love of Christ surpasses knowledge. It's immeasurable. Immeasurable. No matter what you think about it, no matter how grateful you are for the, for the forgiveness that you receive in Christ day after day after day, it's immeasurable, greater than you could possibly imagine. So that's the five uses of this word immeasurable. Now he's talking about immeasurable greatness. He wants us to know what is the hope to which he's called us, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance, and what is the immeasurable greatness. Another point I made last week that I want to revisit just to say in passing, he's not praying that we would get something we don't already have. He's praying that the church would realize what they have. We don't have to look for a second blessing or a second outpouring or something in addition to what has been given us in Christ by grace. We have it. He wants us to know it and to walk in it. Paul's great confidence, his optimism, if you want to use that word, his sure hope rests entirely upon Christ Jesus. In verses 3 to 14, as Paul is listing out those blessings of grace, it's because of Christ. It's not because of me. I wasn't wise. I wasn't, I wasn't especially gifted. Uh, I wasn't especially insightful. It's because of Christ that we have all those blessings. Now as Paul prays that we would experience and know these things in an in a integrated way, the way it changes the way we live our lives, it's all because of Christ. He's not saying now, Now, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Like, it's up to you. Just, you know, think positive. The power of positive thinking. That's not Paul. He wants us to think. He wants us to know we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. It's only because of Christ. It always traces back to Christ. All good things that affect us to the glory of God trace back to Christ. All right. Let's reboot verses 18 and 19, put them together, and build on it. It looks like this. 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, he's talking to Gentile believers, your hearts enlightened, that you Gentiles may know what is the hope to which he's called you. You Gentiles. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us? Now it's not you, it's us. Paul was raised in a tradition where he knew the prophets. Paul was converted on the Damascus Road. Paul understands a lot of backstory that Gentiles don't. So he's praying that those Gentiles would experience and know and understand and appreciate what he, as a Jewish believer, a Messianic believing Jew, what he understands. His greatness of his power toward us Jews, us Gentiles, slave-free, male-female, doesn't make any difference. His greatness of power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. You've got that phrase, according to, which we found at least five times prior in Ephesians chapter 1. And whenever you see that little phrase, according to, it's tracing back to a source. You remember, we looked at the five instances earlier in Ephesians. It, uh, all those blessings that were named in verses 3 to 14, it traced back to God's grace. It traced back to his purpose. It traced back to his will. That's why you have those things. It didn't trace back to me. It didn't trace back to church. It didn't trace back to Charles Spurgeon or Martin Luther or Augustine or pick your person. It traced back to Christ. So we've got something here that traces back. Uh, It indicates a correlation, a cause and effect relationship. It traces a certain outcome, event or action back to its source. So he wants measurable greatness of his power. Let's trace that power back to its source. It's the working of his great might. That power traces back to God, not people. Not if we work together, arm in arm, you know, we'll, one for all and all for one. No, it doesn't trace back to that unity. It traces back to what God has done. That's the source of the great power. So what do I need to know about the working of his great might? Uh, if, if that's the immeasurable greatness traces back to his great might, what do I need to know about it? It looks like this, that he worked in Christ. Traces right back to Christ as we found all along. That great might traces back to God's power, God the Father, his might as evidenced in the person of Christ. The crowning standard and achievement of God's power is known by his power in Christ Jesus. It's no wonder Paul prays this. Because when I think of power, when I want to think about God being all-powerful, I think of things like Genesis 1.1, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out form and void. What's power? It's God existing unto himself, by himself. There's nothing, because nothing is blackness, and it could still be something. We're talking about a God who merely speaks, and all of creation is spoken into existence. That's power. But that's not what he traces this power back to. He traces it back to Christ. God, who on, what was it, the fourth day, there will be two lights to rule. The, the greater light by day, the lesser light by night. And I like you, maybe if you've ever been to Genesis, uh, I think one of the things I'd like to do, maybe even after Ephesians, I'd, I'd be really, I'm really toying with like the first 11 or so chapters of Genesis. I think that would be fascinating. But that's a long way off. We're only finishing chapter one of Ephesians. But I am thinking along those lines. 
But God said, there's going to be a greater light to rule by day, a lesser light to rule by night. And then, it, and then in Genesis says, and the stars. And the stars. Like you threw that in, and the stars? Like, are you, have you seen like some of the new, new uh, shots they're taking with that telescope they launched and, and how they, they're probing the, the galaxies and, and all this incredible beauty? If you haven't seen it, uh, they started making those photos available in the last week or so. It's phenomenal. That's power. But that's not what he traces this power back to. He's like, if you want to talk about power, we're not talking about creation. And I have Job on there because I love that passage, which... I'll maybe just read a little, little bit of it. You don't really have to turn there. But Job talks about God's power. And Job, in answering his friends, says of God, that God stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. How is it the earth is in this perfect orbit except by God's power? It's hanging on nothing. All of God's creation is by his perfect design, and it's kept together by his perfect design. I know from Psalms, every one of those stars is known by God by name. We're still discovering stars we didn't even know existed. And God, oh yeah, that was back on day four. And the stars, remember? So he hangs the earth on nothing. Job says, he binds up the water in his thick clouds and the cloud is not split open under them. Now, I know scientifically there's these updrafts that keep all that water up there until it's, you know, those droplets become so heavy and it rains down. I know that's the way scientifically it works. I have no idea how that happens because water's heavy. And that water can fill up these, you know, some people for their gutters have those, I forget, it retains all that water in a big barrel, those water barrels to recycle. That stuff's heavy. And you're talking God sends how many tons of water across this earth suspended in the air and then it all comes down? To me, that's a miracle. I just, a lot of times those storms, I'm not seeing a lot of updrafts from my vantage point and I realize science, try, you know, they think they understand. I like being amazed by it because sometimes there's no great, sometimes there is great wind. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes it's just all of a sudden it's like somebody turned on the water faucet and it comes down in buckets. And if you were to have a trough out there and think you could lift it, it would be unimaginable. It's immeasurable how heavy it is. That's power. So Job's talking about these things and then he says at the end of this, some of the other things are going to be harder to understand, but then Job said, he winds it up by saying, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? Job says, if you could understand all the forces of nature, all the powers that are out there, you could claim you've heard the whisper of God. You could claim you've touched the fringe of his garment. That's how much you would be able to claim. That's not much. But, but Paul, in writing this letter, doesn't say, don't you remember who, who created the sun, moon, and stars? who created the, the birds of the sky and all the diversity and the, the creeping things and the lives. Don't you remember who did all that? That's not what he points back to. He says, don't you remember what he did in Christ? That's power. That's power. Deliverance from Egypt is the measurement of power in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, before Jesus became incarnate, if you wanted to measure power in the Old Testament, what the Old Testament goes back to time and time again for the Jews is, don't you remember, he delivered his people Israel out of slavery. Pharaoh had a grip on Israel. 
And the Lord released that grip and delivered his people as through the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army was swallowed up. That's power. And, and the Lord never let his people forget it. They were reminded of that every time they celebrated Passover because that was power. But that's not what Paul points to. He doesn't talk about the God of creation. He doesn't talk about the God of the Jews delivering them out of slavery. He says, don't you remember what he worked in Christ? So what do I need to know about what God worked in Christ? He tells us he raised him from the dead. That's power. That's power. When God spoke the worlds into existence, that's creative power. We call it ex nihilo. He created out of nothing. But by comparison, Paul would say, no, what's really impressive is he raised Christ from the dead. Because creating out of nothing, you start with nothing, call it neutral. It's neither here nor there. But when you talk about raising somebody from the dead, you're talking about corrosive power, a corrosive grip. You're talking about what the potential, what's going to happen is decay, uh, the demise of something. Christ wasn't in the grave long enough to decay. He was kept from that. But that's what certainly would have happened except for resurrection power. So that's a negative consequence. God takes this negative consequence. There were all these, you know, from a human vantage point, they're obstacles. You know, a stone is rolled in front of the tomb. It's sealed. They post uh, guards to keep the tomb secure. And God has no problem overcoming all those obstacles. God has no problem overcoming death. And Christ is risen from the grave. He raised him from the dead. Why does Paul pray that for us? Because that's our hope as Christians. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that will resurrect me to life. It's also the same power in which I'm to walk now as a believer. Sometimes sometimes we get the idea that somebody is so far gone, uh, maybe they're a Christian, but they seem so stubborn or so repressed in some area of their life, it's hard to imagine there could possibly be change. I think Joe, you know, Joe kind of talked about that in Sunday school. Like Saul was not a believer to start off. He was, he was Christ, uh, Christianity's greatest enemy, and God saved him on that Damascus road. He, he called him by his grace, and his life was changed. If God can do that to Saul, he can do it in any sinner's life. If God can change Saul, he can change me. He can save me from my bad habits too. He can save you from your bad habits too. And let's not fall into the trap of saying it just can't happen. It's just the way it is. I love Bruce Hornsby's song, The Way It Is. It's just the way it is. Not if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you believe in resurrection. If you're a Christian, you believe things can change because God is greater than our sin. And our habits. So, what do I need to know about the power of God working in Christ? Well, for starters, he raised him from the dead. Let's build on that. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. So the power of God is evidenced in Christ rose from the grave and he seated him and put all things under his feet. We're talking about Jesus' ascension. 
a couple years ago, I think it was during COVID and we were all messed up and I think I spent three or four weeks, maybe longer, just talking about the importance of the ascension in the Bible, how important the ascension is. Jesus didn't ascend to rest. He ascended to rule. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father because his work of redemption is complete. But he ascended to rule far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every other name, both in this age and the age to come. He ascended to rule, not to rest. His ascension doesn't leave us empty. It's not, his, it's not an indication of his absence from the church. His ascension is a guarantee of his presence with the church. Jesus said to his disciples, look, I'm going away. And it's good that I go away. Because if he's here, you know where he's at? But probably not in Mount Zion. Not this Mount Zion, maybe the Mount Zion in Israel. He's at one place at one particular time. But being raised into, into heaven at the right hand of his father, he rules and he reigns, and his presence by his spirit is with all of God's people everywhere. He's not absent. It's a guarantee of his presence, which is exactly the reference from Matthew chapter 28, what Jesus told his disciples. I'm going to make sure I get it right. It goes like, oh my goodness, I have no idea where I'm at my notes. Uh, okay. And Jesus came and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's exactly what Paul's saying. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Not his absence, his presence. And he has all authority. He rules and he reigns. He's not resting. In Genesis, Adam and Eve were given the charge of putting all of creation under their feet. And they failed. And then, boy, it would be fun. I don't think we have time for it. But it would be really interesting to go through Psalm... Well, why don't you go to Psalm? Psalm chapter 8. It's probably worth looking at real quick. I don't have a page number for that, but that's the biggest book in your Bible. It's roughly in the middle. And go to one of the first Psalms, Psalm chapter 8. It's a familiar Psalm. And then it's quoted in, in Hebrews. And the two passages go together so beautifully. And they teach such important truth. Psalm chapter 8. Oh, I'll start right at verse 1. Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. Oh, Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the, my Bible says, heavenly beings. A lot of other old translations say angels. You know what the word is? It's Elohim. It's the word, it's a generic word for God. And God uses it of himself all the time. But his personal name is more like Yahweh. So that's just, it's translated the Lord. But, but God, the Lord is God. So it's the word Elohim. 
But translators struggled with that so much that they took a word. I'm sure I've got it in my notes here somewhere. They took a word, Elohim, in the Old Testament that has been translated 2,605 times. That word is found in the Old Testament, the word Elohim. 2,605 times. you know how many times it's ever translated angels? Once in Psalm chapter 8. Because they just couldn't bring themselves to say, you've made him a little lower than God. So they said angels. But in a sense, there's nothing in all of creation. I'm not saying we're God. That would be heresy. I get that. But I am saying there's nothing in all of creation that it was created in God's image except for man, Adam and Eve, in the image of God. And there is nothing higher in all of creation. No angel in heaven is created in a higher sense than Adam and Eve, than mankind was created. Because we're created in the image of God. Angels are just messengers. They're messenger boys. They have power we don't have. I get that. But they're not created in the image of God. So then it, we don't have time. I say we don't have time to do all these things and I'm doing them. But I, we're not going to go to Ephesians or a Hebrews. But in Hebrews what you find is, okay, we've got this wonderful promise. That, you know, man is given charge. And then if Hebrews says, but... But we look at things, and man's not doing a very good job of putting all things under his feet. We're not doing a very good job of looking like the image of God. But then Hebrews says, but we see Jesus. We see Jesus, high and lifted up. And Jesus is doing what we failed to do. Jesus is doing what Adam and Eve failed to do. Jesus is the promise that we're going to rule and reign with him, and it traces back to Christ. Not because we finally got our act together on our own. It's because of what Christ has done in and for us. He's put all things under his feet. Let's build on this. So we've got Jesus, God's power, raised Christ from the dead, seated him far above all these things, put all things under his feet, and... Gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So three, the main, three main things is he raised him from the dead. He, uh, uh, Jesus ascended to the Father. He was uh, ascended to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns. And the third thing is God gave the Son to the church. The word gave here is a word that means bestowment or glorious gift. It, it can also mean just a generic give. Uh, I could give you, you could give me something, we could give each other. But, but in the best sense, it's a bestowment or a gift. It's lo- hundreds of times in the New Testament. It's John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He, it's a gift. And God, the Father, gave his son, the one who rules and reigns in this age and the age to come, he gives the son to the church? Do you think that's a pretty good gift? It's better than we realize. As head, this is not a term derived from the image of the church as his body. The problem is, it does say the church is his body. But because we see that word body, we think, oh yeah, The church is the body and Christ is like the head. 
because every head needs a body. But that's not why the word head is used. The church is a body, but the head is in reference to everything that went before. He put all things under his feet. He's the head. Everything's under him. That's why he's the head. It's signifying his rule, his authority, his power, not his relationship to the body. Not in this case, at any rate. Look at it this way. This isn't really an accurate translation to put it in parentheses like this, but it conveys, I think, the meaning of Paul. So, God the Father put all things under Christ's feet and gave him, the one who is head over all things, gave Christ to the church. That's, I think, what Paul is striking at. He's not saying, and he's our our head of the body. He's saying, do you realize the one I just described ascended to the right hand of the Father who's ruling and reigning over every power, every authority, every dominion, every what we conceive of as a threat in the worst of circumstances. He rules over all that, and he's given to us by the Father. The church, ecclesia. It's a compound word. The ek means out from. The klesia is from a verb kaleo, which means to call. The church is called out from. That's what the church is. We're called out from. We're to be different from the world. We're called out from the world. It's very interesting. That word ekklesia, which is translates church, is related to two other words. You'll be able to immediately recognize them. The first word is elect or chosen, where the Bible calls the church the God's elect, Christ, chosen in Christ. Uh, you see, you can see the relationship between the two words. You've still got the word ek, which means out from, and then the second part of this word means to select. The church is chosen out from; they're selected out from. That's what it, this. We get our English word election from that. An election is you select. Who you're going to vote for. You can't check all the boxes. You haven't made a selection. You're, it's invalid. But when you go to the voting poll, you're making a selection. God's elect. And then you've got the word called. We have the hope of our calling. That word called is this same part of the word for church that we're called out. We're called out. We're summoned. All those words are related. They're all used in Ephesians, as through all the New Testament. And then we finally have, which the church, speaking of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's the most difficult part of chapter 1. All commentators say it's difficult. They, most of them will take a position as to exactly what that means. But all of them that I read would say, uh, it's not clear if my position is exactly the right way to look, there's several possibilities. They're all good. On some sense, they could, they're all, they could all be true statements. What Paul means exactly here is a little bit unclear. But if I were to keep it simple, which I have to do because I would confuse myself if I tried to give you all the complexities of what I tried to read and understand, what is clear at the least is there is a close relationship between Christ and his church. And what Paul means to convey is Christ is given to the church by the Father. And there is a close relationship which gives us every reason for confidence and hope. It looks something like this. Christ exercises his rule, 
his ascension, in his body, the church. He exercises his rule within the church. Secondly, Christ exercises his rule through his body, the church. We are, and some of the songs say, we are, in a sense, the hands and the feet of Christ to the world. He exercises his authority through his church. The world knows who Christ is through the church. And then thirdly, Christ exercises his rule on behalf of his body, the church. On behalf of. Which is why in Romans 8, chapter 31 to 39, uh, let's do that scripture reading. Go in your hymnal to number 49. This especially highlights Christ exercising his rule on behalf of the church. We have no reason to fear. We have no reason to fret and be anxious about things. Christ is ruling and he's given to us on our behalf. So another responsive reading. Let's do it together. I'll let you sit for this one. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. connection is so tight. The one who had all authority has been given to him is working on behalf of his church. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. What a blessed promise. It's like, uh, no, I won't go there. Uh, Acts chapter 9, uh, Christ identifies with his church. We did that in Sunday school just not very long ago where Saul was struck down on the Damascus road and and he heard a voice and a light from heaven and a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my church? No. Why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? Because that's his body. Why do you persecute me? Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 is a very interesting passage. You're in, in Ephesians. Go. The next book is Philippians. The book after that is Colossians. Technically, the letter after that is Colossians. So go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. This is a very similar book or letter as the letter is to the Ephesians. There's a lot of parallel themes. Paul writes uh, to the Colossians in chapter 1 and verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. 
That's a very interesting passage we did Colossians many years ago. When he says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, he's not saying that the atonement somehow was missing a part. That work was finished on the cross when Jesus said it is finished. What he's filling up what is lacking is the suffering and the persecution that goes along with proclaiming the finished work of the gospel. Because when Paul goes out on all these missionary journeys and he's telling people the truth of the gospel, he is being afflicted. And he is calling people in some sense to a certain amount of, you're going to pick up your cross and you're going to follow him. And it's not always going to be easy. So the affliction continues and there's this close relationship between Christ and his church. What I want to end with is a sermon from 200 or 100 years ago, a man named E.S. Woods. Uh, I'm sure I didn't read the complete sermon. It's in one of the series I have where they have large excerpts from sermons. I found this very convicting. So you may or may not, I did. E.S. Woods, in his sermon, asked, Is Christ's headship an accurate description of the policy and activities of the church today? This is 100 years ago. I kind of have in my mind 100 years ago the church was in a better state than it is today. And then I read a sermon like this and I thought, you know what? What they struggled with sounds like what we struggle with too, or what I struggle with. 100 years ago, is Christ's headship an accurate description of the policy and activities of the church today? We talk glibly of his headship over the church. How far does the church in concrete fact recognize him and treat him as head? Can we say that, forsaking all other issues, the church devotes its main energies to the things which Jesus Christ clearly regards as being of supreme importance? Or am I just happy to be in the fellowship with fellow believers in Christ? And I'm just very comfortable here as we picnic, as I picnic on my way to heaven. Or am I called to something a little bit more than that? Enjoying fellowship, but realizing we're called to something more than just enjoying one another's company. His sermon goes on. What would be involved in a reassertion in the church of the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ? It would, of course, make an enormous difference in tone, in atmosphere, in the quality of the church's common life. We would get a truer sense of proportion and learn to put first things first. That was his emphasis, not mine. What are these first things? If Christ were really head, what would I be putting first or giving greater priority and time and attention to than what I am presently? This is for me. He starts off, the first thing, evangelism. Is the church doing it? I mean, it, I found it convicting as I kind of thought through this sermon as I've worked, been worked, thinking about it the better part of the week or a good part of the week. Uh, for the last number of years, every June has been very dry. Last number of years, and I was talking to Roger, like I remember uh, looking up some years ago, like traditionally in the 120 years we've uh, measured weather, June is typically the rainiest month of the year. You get more rain typically in June than any other month of the year. And at least the last three years, June has been pretty close to bone dry. And when June is bone dry, you know, my family, extended family in some sense or whatever, you know, we've got farming, some farming background and connections and I bicycle and I see far, and I see the corn under stress and the, the leaves are starting to curl up and they're trying to conserve and, and it's looking rough. And I start praying. And I'm like, God, America does not deserve your grace or your mercy. We just don't. 
I mean, we are a train wreck as a nation culturally. We don't deserve it. But God, if in your grace and your mercy, this isn't the time and you want to send the rains, I'd be glad to see them. And then I got to thinking, do I pray like that for the lost? God, it's been a long time since I've had an opportunity to share your gospel. Something that's going to change destinies. I just don't pray the same for an unbeliever like I do for rain for corn. That's to my shame. That would be putting first things first. That's one good reason why I want to do evangelism for exiles. Because I think I need to step up my game. I'm running out of time. Secondly, and lastly, E.S. Wood says it would make unity more important. Churches would recover and act upon Christ's great law of self-renunciation. It would stop being all about me and my rights and my preferences. And, you know, I'm involved in a couple groups on MeWe, some Bible theological kind of groups. And it's amazing, you know, this, this in, and I'm picking on somebody else now when I need, you know, I'm a, I've got the problem too. But it's amazing how selfish people are if they're discussing issues of the Bible and social media. You know, this guy that's my age, exactly my age, and he, he doesn't like the church because they don't sing any of the songs he likes, and, you know, they're just all about singing these new songs, and, and on and on he complains. And, like, it's okay that we don't always sing songs I like. I get to pick more songs than anybody else, so most of the time we are singing songs I like. But sometimes Hannah picks them, or sometimes Darwin, you know, when they're playing in the service, they don't always pick the songs I would pick. That's okay. It's not about me. It was never about me. It's not my church. It's Christ's church, and I need to remember that. Let's go end with your comments and questions. Uh, Terry, and then Rick. Yep, that's exactly right. And I thought, I th- you know, I thought during the week, I thought that would be a good illustration myself, you know, a long jump where it's like, it's past the sand. It's part- Nobody could imagine anybody could jump that far, but exactly that kind of a concept. It's immeasurable. Nobody was prepared for it because they didn't think it was possible. That's exactly right. Good illustration. Rick. And I think actually, yeah, Peter actually has a warning of that in his letter, you know, something about uh, how you treat God's lot, God's inheritance. Like he's, it's a warning to the elders not to, to rule, uh, I forget the word he uses, but to rule in, a, in, in not a way that honors Christ. Be careful how you treat God's inheritance. That's an excellent point as well. Someone else? We are done with Ephesians chapter 1. So uh, in a couple, three weeks from today, uh, Lord willing, we will start Ephesians chapter 2. Let's, uh, let's stand and sing the doxology. I feel like we should do something like that.